Well, good evening, and welcome to A Reason for Hope, where we <clears throat> answer your questions about the Bible, uh, Christian worldview, world religions. Sometimes we even cover uh, philosophical questions here that pertains to the Christian faith or how we deal with questions of faith. Uh, in studio with us today is Pastor Sean Richards, uh, which is always a pleasure to have him. He's uh, Pastor Scott, as he always says, he's a right-hand man. And also joining us is Pastor Bo Olette. How you doing, Bo? Doing awesome, buddy. It's good to have you uh, have me. Yeah, <laughs> to have have me have you. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. I'm I'm filling in for Pastor Dave Robson. Uh, he was uh, officiating a wedding, so I'm going to be pushing the buttons, and hopefully you can hear us and see us okay. <laughs> Nothing's going wrong, but uh, so far everything looks pretty good. And uh, you can connect with this program. It's a daily Bible answer program every day at 5 o'clock p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And you can connect with us uh, online at Facebook. This is where we live stream, Facebook. Uh, it's uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship. <coughs> you can look at us of up Tucson. on of Tucson. Uh, you can also find us on YouTube. It's called a, just search for A Reason for Hope on YouTube. You can also go to our website and click the Watch Live button. And that will take you to an actual live stream of our current broadcast. So you can always check that out. And, of course, uh, you can catch us on our app. We have an actual Apple and uh, <coughs> uh, Apple and uh, Android. Android app. Yep. <laughs> and uh, so, it's to, again, just look up Calvary Christian Fellowship or CCF Tucson, and you can find us on the app. We also have a Roku and we're also on Apple TV, so we have lots of ways for you to connect with the program, to view it. Uh, of course, if you want to ask a question in real time, uh, you can do that on Facebook Live and in YouTube. You can also email your questions at a questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, no numbers, at gmail.com. So before we get to our first question for today, uh, Sean, would you care to pray for our time? Yes, once the people can see me, I'd be happy to see <laughs> that. Thank you that we have the chance to be in your word. We want to ask that you would not only give us the kind of heart to share your word effectively, but also to do so in the way you would if you were in our place. We're grateful that we have this opportunity, ministry, and honor, and we also want to ask that you would be the one to make it worthwhile and see to it that it edifies your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm, amen. Thank All you right. so much. Well, we got an email question we're going to start off with today, and it's uh, kind of a, a hefty topic <clears throat> because it's personal, but uh, Pastor Bo here got an email from a friend, and his name is Thomas, and he was wondering what our bodies will be like after we pass, before the resurrection. And I'll just read it the way he worded it. <clears throat> you mentioned that uh, those who are still alive could be walking down the street, and all of a sudden they would... Uh, hear and hear a horn, and they would. He said, spelt here wrong. So <laughs> they would hear a horn, and they would have their new glorified body without dying. So these, he's describing what happens at the rapture. You're just walking down the street when Jesus comes, and boom, we're just gone, and we don't die, but we're instantly in our glorified bodies. Uh, that would be so cool to see God's power like that. I've often wondered about those with our Lord now. What is it like? It seems like they don't have their earthly body nor do they have their future coming glorified body at this moment. So um, are they disembodied spirits? Are they asleep until the horn blows and the graves are opened? What's the status of a person when they pass right now as a believer prior to us being glorified at the Lord's coming? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that's brought up very often with many, many, many people. Um, and, you know, I would say that if, you, if you're not familiar uh, with um, the entirety of the Bible, this can be kind of a confusing part or a confusing doctrine and set of teachings. Um, because the Bible talks about resurrections and stages. And, and so if you don't know that, um, it might be like, well, what's, you know, how does this work? You know, wh- what's going on? Well, what we do know from Second Corinthians chapter 5, something really clear is that Paul says in this chapter that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he's making an argument to the Corinthian church that, hey, you know what? It, it's greater to be with God and to be out of this tent, what he calls a tent, a body. And, uh, and it's even better than really being present. But he realizes that the Corinthian church need him as a teacher of doctrine. And so he makes this statement that, hey, even though it's good for me to be here with you guys, I'd rather be with the Lord. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is far better. And so we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you're absent from the body, you can be present with the Lord. We know that also from Jesus's death on the cross in his conversation with one of the thieves. Um, One of the thieves uh, asked Jesus a really pointed question, and that was Jesus... uh, you know, I, well, he said, I want to be with you in paradise, or I want to be with you wherever you go. I want to be with you. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so obviously those, um, that, that is a, uh, direct passage from Jesus. I can't, I wouldn't say that Jesus was lying, (laughs) that the guy's not going to really be with Jesus, you know? So we know that when that person died on that cross near Jesus, um, you know, if we trust Jesus and the authority of Jesus, that there is a way for someone to be in the presence of God, mm. um, even without this, what we call a glorified body from the resurrection or the rapture um, of the church. Um, you know, so, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 describes what our bodies kind of will be like. Um, and he goes through a wonderful talk there in First Corinthians 15 about our, uh, you know, the terrestrial body and the celestial bodies, um, and how they have different kind of ways about them and beauties about them and things and purposes in them. Um, but that is going to be uh, a spe- that's a specific event that takes place and that's promised to the Christian. So the Christian is promised a new body. A body that's like Jesus at some Mm. point. But we also are told another truth, and that's the ones we get from Paul and Jesus. And that is when you are absent from the body, meaning at the point you die, you are in the presence of God. What what is that going to be like? Mm. I'm not sure. I really don't know exactly. Disembodied spirit? I don't know. I I don't know exactly what that's going to be like. Maybe, Sean, do you have any... 
Yeah, so working with the information you laid out, obviously you reference Jesus on the cross speaking to the thief. You can see this in the Synoptic Gospels first and most significantly, Mm -hmm. Jesus' resurrection appearances that he said, a spirit does not have flesh and bone like you see that I have. That's a quote verbatim. And what's also important to note is that as he's interacting and eating with them, it's obviously more than a human body. You then reference 1 Corinthians 15, where the person who asked the question is making that point, that there is, in fact, going to be a moment where we will be transformed from one body to the other. But we make the distinction, and this is the reason for the question, between this 1 Corinthians 15 glorification that takes place at the catching up, and if you have questions about that, please send them, but also noting a point of those who physically died are with Jesus but aren't receiving these glorified bodies, what Paul's talking about. So in the interim stage, we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and noting those who have physically died before the kingdom has come, so to speak. And he makes this point that they're, as you stated, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, with the Lord. Foundational, fundamental, and basically at the most simplest level, definition (laughs) of heaven with Jesus. Now, noting the state that they're in, we're talking about a God who made Adam (laughs) from dirt, who made the universe from talking, and of course is capable of introducing new factors. But you're very careful, not only to your own self, but the service of the audience, in not saying anything the Bible doesn't say. What is this gapped period? Answer to the question, fundamentally, we don't know. But we do know they're in the presence of a God who can make accommodation, so to speak. (laughs) And that's what we're going off of. We're filling in the information we don't have with information that we do. Can God provide a temporary dwelling place, the tent, that is, of course, fitted for heaven before the glorified bodies are given to them? Absolutely, he's capable of that. Will he do it? We're not told, but it seems to fit the bill. The, I guess, uh, filling in the other gaps, you answered, and I'm just repeating your point. Yeah, no, it's good. You answered preemptively, but what about the idea of soul sleep, that you just go into this inert state? You emptied that possibility out of all of its merit by noting Jesus directly addressing someone in the Gospel of Luke, saying, this day, being very specific in his wording, you will be with me in paradise, with me in paradise. Note that again is the definition of heaven. So three working rules. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you belong to the Lord, you'll be with him at the point of physical death. Noting then there will be a generation, second fact, those who have physically died will be with the Lord without physically dying. They will be caught up into what we refer to as the rapture. It's an end times view, but one that we can Mm -hmm. clarify biblically as well. Then the third fact is, is God, and this is the investigation aspect of the question, capable of providing either temporary dwelling places for them to interact with God in this way, or do they even need that dwelling place in heaven? Since we'll have an eternal state with a glorified body, there's people who have suggested, and good people at that, that a physical body until we return to this earth would serve no purpose, that they can just be with God as beings of pure conscience, just or consciousness rather, just like the angels and they can take physical forms as they see fit in interacting with this world. It's a guess. And note, just as much an inference as the temporary body that may be given to them at this time or that time. But the point being made is this. What we're told in Scripture, three passages. You mentioned them, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Thessalonians 4, 
1 Corinthians 15, our working rules about the state of the afterlife. It got green all of a sudden. <laughs> so the point being made is just that. We need to work with what we have, not what we don't. What we do have and know is the most important feature of our loved ones who have passed away. They are with Jesus, and that's the whole point of First Thessalonians 4. Yeah, and it is also another wonderful cross-text is Romans chapter 8, which is also, its context is one of suffering, Christian suffering. And in that context of Christian suffering, Jesus, or Paul the Apostle says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. It's interesting. He goes down and, and makes more of a list, right? Angels, and he goes through a list. But the interesting thing is the first thing he says uh, to the suffering Christians is that death will not separate you from the love of God. And that really, I think, flies in the face of that giant doctrine of soul sleep. It's like when you die, you know, death is not going to separate you from God, mm. you know? And this is what, this is the wonderful encouragement you know, it's like Paul didn't say, oh, by the way, when you die, um, you're going to kind of just like be kind of nothing. You won't even know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you won't even know. You'll be with me in paradise, but you'll be taking a long nap. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, he doesn't, that, I don't know if that would have been very encouraging mm -hmm. for the Christians that were going through such persecution back then. I mean, they really desired to draw close to Christ. And Paul says, hey, even if they kill you, man, kill your body. Dude, you are, you are, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Mm. I mean, man, you are right there. And I mean, that would have been encouraging, mm. you know? So I think, I think when you look at the text of uh, Romans 8 too, it really flies in the face of that idea <coughs> of like, hey, before I get my glorified body, I'm going to be just in this soul sleep kind of thing. You have you to know? make two inferences, neither of which are supported in the text and are in conflict with some. Or on the other hand, you note Jesus meant what he said, and what he said doesn't conflict with anything. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So there we go. Well, thank you. <clears throat> and uh, we haven't seen any questions online, so we're we going to— have one from Jermile on Facebook. Oh, nice. I'm the not... question is, does time stop in heaven? Ooh. Well, that's very, very closely related. Yeah. So the, in the eternal stop? state— this is a tricky one for some people because when dealing with the concept of eternity, we're yeah. so used to things having not just a start, but this is where people get yeah, tripped up yeah. and end. Yeah. And the reason for that being associated mm -hmm. with time is because in this fallen universe, we measure time on the basis of decay, things running down, things getting worse. It's been such and such amount of time because I look less and less than when I started. But in heaven, it's going to basically be the reverse. And again, we started the broadcast clarifying that term. What is heaven? It's with Jesus. And we note examples of people on this earth who were with Jesus, and decay wasn't really a factor for them during that time period. I'm thinking of Moses when he was on Mount Sinai, 40 days and nights with him. Not significant to Noah's flood, it's just the measurement. But what was interesting about that was during his time receiving the law, the oral tradition in Genesis, the laws in Leviticus and so forth, and the history that he wasn't privy to himself in Exodus, what was his uh, meal plan, if you will? Nothing. He didn't need food or drink. He spent all that time with the Lord, and his body wasn't breaking down. Why? With the Lord. That's the factor that makes no end in sight. So in the new heavens and in the new earth, notice different from heaven proper, but will be with the Lord then too, 
How will time be measured into eternity? And interestingly enough, it will be by our meal plan. In the book of Revelation chapter 22, we're told that instead of measuring things by solar or lunar cycles, there won't be any need for the sun or moon or stars to be in it. Instead of measuring it by decay, because these things have passed away, death and Hades have been cast into the lake of fire, what are we told? Notice the time terms here. A tree, the tree of life, will bear a new fruit each month. So we'll literally be measuring time instead by decay and celestial motion, if you will. We'll be measuring it on the basis of our meal plan. But the concept of us continuing to exist, this conscious awareness of that just happened and something else is coming, we understand that this is something we see through the perspective of fear and of concern in this world because Murphy's Law, right? Anything that can go wrong will, future tense. But if on the other hand we note with Jesus, that's the perspective of eternity. They're like the rising sun, being more and more glorious as time goes on. So the idea of there not being time in heaven. For our perspective, obviously there will be, and Scripture can support that. But if on the other hand we'd say, but isn't being in eternity like God being timeless, does, how does he see time? We're overcomplicating it and forcing ourselves into an infinite perspective. From our perspective and our revel, our relevance, rather, in heaven we'll be with Jesus and experiencing time not on the basis of rot, not on the basis of destruction, not on the basis of things going away, but newer and greater things coming to us more and more. It'll be just like this life, but without the uh, saggy bits, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think that's so neat to th think about. And I love thinking about these topics. I, mm -hmm. I find them really fascinating and you, your mind can just go in different directions. And, <clears throat> you know, I certainly see even in our, in our time, you know, through different um, scientific achievements, uh, mathematical achievements, um, you know, we've learned that, you know, um, a lot about time, matter, and space and how time is, is not so much constant and, um, and, uh, you know, relative to speed. Yeah. And we, we kind of trip out with all that. We kind of go, Whoa, you know, that's so interesting, but it really makes me think like, Hey, then it's not such a leap, you know, logically to think that, you know, there is a dimension that is much different than our metaphysics here, you know, our, uh, you know, our laws here. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, even in our dimension, so to speak, there is, uh, you know, there's, we can run tests to see how things change, uh, time changes. And so we could go, we could kind of imagine a, a place that is on a different whole entire mm. law structure. Um, and, and this is interesting, you know, the Bible declares that God is outside of time, within time, everywhere within time. So he experiences time, but he, his existence, he's not, he's timeless. He's not bound to it. He's not bound to his creation. Time is a created, time as we know it is a created thing. Mm -hmm. um, and yet God could also be at a point within the, the time continuum that he creates. Mm. And so we have a very unique being being described. That's, uh, you know, the revelation of God in the Bible. And, and um, so, you know, we got to imagine from the revelation that we have in the scriptures 
that heaven is a, a very unique place because God has revealed himself as being very unique uh, to be able to be outside of time, within time, and on a dot. And in know, heaven, there's, you know, when you talk about the millennial place. kingdom, there's no shadows, his light is everywhere, but it's mm-hmm. a physical place, it's a physical existence, so it has to be, you know, part of the universe in some way, shape, or form. So it seems like in heaven, there will be some form of time, uh, some form of, I guess it's hard for us to even comprehend what it would be like to experience life or existence without a moment-by-moment sense. And so... But the assumption is that we're put into God's perspective instead of our own perspective with God, and that's where you have to Mm -hmm. be careful. Yeah, yeah. You know, experiencing a closeness with God is uh, is life and abundant life at that. Mm. And being in the presence of in heaven is literally the fullness of abundant life and experiencing all that really life uh, is in God. And and that is so much more than what we experience here now. So it's, it's a great question to ponder. Um, scripturally, we, we are absolutely sure um, that there is some way of measurement, as, as Sean indicated, um, and I see this in the book of Revelation as well, so um, Sean might know the exact spot, but I do see uh, people before the throne of God that are able that, you know, uh, it's certainly that they are within a some kind of time continuum before the throne of God. It's not like they're oblivious to things of the past or things uh, could potentially in the future. Or where uh, they are in the present. Yeah, or where they are in the present. Um, so in that sense, there's a similarity to what we have here um, but it's it's definitely uh, a different focus, a different point of of focus. Um, I guess that's a good way to say it. We have another um, interesting question here um, <clears throat> on our YouTube channel. Uh, Talon writes, maybe this isn't the place for this, but I feel like the world and even us as Christians sometimes don't love as hard as we can. How do I not resent people for that? Well, I guess the two main questions there is, are we ever loving people the way that we ought, all of us? And if I were to resent someone who's not loving as much as me, is that perfectly loving, or is that a lack of love in my heart? The good news is God's got the love department enough for all of us to share, and we're given grace into each one. But again, Bo, in your experience in showing grace to people and grace itself being a lost and dying art, Mm. what does that look like? Does it include patience with people who maybe aren't as far along as we are? Does it include mercy towards those who maybe don't deserve it? Does it include the nature of God and being patient with us when we don't love as much as we ought to and him not resenting us? Yeah, absolutely. You nailed it, dude. I mean, those are all absolutely it. And I do think, too, that people... You know, what's going to help you um, in this situation is Romans 3.23, is just going back to some of the main passages of Scripture and the main doctrines of, of the Bible. Um, that passage says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, you know, when we, when we start off with the, the idea that, um, that all of us as human beings are corrupt, that we are all alienated from God, 
and that God is, in a sense, hidden from us. He is separate from us, and that's why we live in this world of separation from God. Meaning, what I mean by that is we don't have God here in the flesh, so to speak. We don't have God's uh, full presence with us. There is a a distance between human beings and the perfect God. There is a problem, um, and we are all a part of that problem. The Bible says, "All you know, the, what has separated us from God is our sin." You know, mm. the prophet Isaiah spoke, and and that's so true. And I think when you you know re- realize that for yourself, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then it's not such a big leap to you know look at other people and. Um, and and then being able to look more inward to yourself right after you look at other people and see their failure and look at you and go, man, maybe I'm a little like that too, or maybe I'm a lot like that. And I find that same behavior kind of manifest in me as well. And uh, I tend to say, I, I, I tend to, uh, you know, when I sh- tend to share with people, I tend uh, to let them know that, you know, when we look at people and we see failure in other people, it's really a reflection of our own heart. It's our, our heart sees something that is in us as well. Um, it's something that registers with us. So when we see some, when we see murder, you know, and our heart breaks or we're upset about it, you know, it's upset because we know we're capable mm-hmm. of such same things. Mm-hmm. You know, we see that when we see lustful attitudes and we see unbridled lustful behaviors, you know, and we get upset about it, but there's something in us that goes, man, I'm not much different than that as well. I have unbridled lust that moves in different directions as well. Mm. And and like you say, when you, you know, when you realize the mercy of God on such a human being, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you appropriate that mercy in your own life, as the Bible says, blessed are the merciful, right? It's like, you know, they're going to be the inheritors of the kingdom of the earth. You know, they're going to be the ones that, you know, reap the benefit, the merciful. Because why? Because we're able to look at everything through the lens of mercy. Mm. Mercy is you are getting something that, or what you do deserve, you don't get. So what you do deserve, you don't get. And God's giving you mercy. So right when someone says, God has been merciful to me, you are, you're admitting that you deserve something worse. And so how could I, who am saying God's merciful mm. to me, look at someone else and say, man, what a dummy, what an idiot. Well, yeah, they might be doing something idiotic and I might be pointing that out, but I definitely, what's gonna help me to be graceful and compassionate and empathetic is to take a look inside and realize that I have my own wars and I have my own battles, and yet God has been merciful, like you say, gracious. Gracious grace is, is actually a gift that you've been given by God uh, that you don't deserve. So grace is something different from mercy, and you really need to uh, you know, do your due diligence to know mm-hmm. these definitions, because grace is, you know, you don't deserve salvation. You don't deserve closeness with God, but God's given you that. And, and I think and, of that prodigal son story, you know, the the parable of the prodigal son of how he did everything wrong, the other brother did everything right, <laughs> and yet supposedly. the one who was supposedly <laughs> doing everything wrong received grace, and the other brother resented that brother for that. And I think that when when we look at 
because our our questioner responded by saying, "Well, how do? What if they're not growing? What if they're not growing like they ought to?" Well, you know, by our own master we stand or fall. We are not the judge of such things. Uh, obviously, that doesn't mean that as a church we don't institute church discipline if someone is in, you know, rebellious sin, and we you know we deal with that. But that's you know at the rate at which someone grows, if they're not growing a According to your standards, it's it's probably a good idea to remember where you came from in order to prevent yourself from resenting someone because they're not growing at the same level that you are. Yeah, and I would say this too is uh, I, I don't what's the what's the person's name? Uh, it was uh, uh, t- um, let me bring it back up here again. It's uh, Talon. 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 Well, I would just say Talon. No matter where a person is at in their growth, their spiritual growth or their spiritual lack of growth, no matter where a person's at, the scriptures always tell us to love our neighbor as ourself, and it says to love our enemies. There's no part in Jesus's teachings that say, you know what, love your enemies, but, or love your neighbor, but, you know, we are always to love. You know, it we can be compassionate and loving and empathetic in our our sharing, um, our admonishing. The Bible would use the term admonishing, meaning coming alongside someone and helping them move forward, or giving them strong warning on where they're going in their life or what they're doing in their life. You know, mm. so it loving doesn't mean a lack of confrontation, and and you know we love the truth enough to share with someone but we do it in a compassionate way having as paul the apostle says having our words our conduct be grace seasoned with salt you know so our our words being grace seasoned with salt so you know you can you can look at someone's lack of growth and you can approach them and talk to them about that and maybe the issues that are going on that you know in their mm-hmm. life but but you don't it's not it's not either or, it's both and. You love and you confront someone, you know? So I hope- you care about them, you wouldn't confront them. Right, yeah. yeah. It's, you know, this, the stick in the plank or the speck in the plank situation is first, you know, take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly. So there's some self-examination before we do correct, but I think- Because isn't resentment also a sin? Yeah, Does God yeah. resent us? Is that his character or is that a deviation from Yeah, him? that's great. And that's again- right. Read it on your own time, but Luke chapter 7, there's another parable that it deals with this very issue. Jesus asked Simon Peter, you know, I forgave my brother seven times the same offense. And he says, not seven, but 70 times seven. It goes on to give an illustration of a king that forgave someone a debt that was exorbitant, but he refused to forgive a small debt by comparison owed to him. And he says, which one do you think loved him the more? And he says, this was the one whom he forgave more. Go and do likewise. That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I would say a good principle, too, um, in confrontation, because uh, it sounds like they want to maybe approach someone and talk to them, I would say read First Timothy. Um, it's a great book about confronting, you know, mm. situations. And Timothy or <clears throat> Timothy's told by his mentor, Paul, you know, that the purpose of the command is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Mm. You know, meaning the purpose of the command I'm giving you to go and confront those who are teaching false doctrine is love. 
<laughs> so he says, the first thing he says to Timothy is, man, I, I want you to remain in Ephesus. I want you to deal with false teachers that are in Ephesus. I mean, strong, right? Totally strong. You know, he's totally saying, hey, you need to confront false teachers, Timothy. But he says, you know what? The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Some have wandered from this. But you, you know, he's letting them know that, you know, you don't wander from this. You know, we are to love, you know, so that's the purpose, you know. So confrontation is not a lack of love. It should be done with a wonderful, compassionate love. Well, thank you, Pastor Bill. It's very, very insightful. We have a question on our, our website live stream from, it uh, looks like, Reynold. 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 What does the Holy Spirit look like? Will we see the Holy Spirit in heaven or just know him like we know the Father? That's a cool question. It is. Yeah, remember, <laughs> a spirit isn't a visible thing. Yeah, that's cool. what we're trying to clarify. Uh, when it comes to any visible representation of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, that responsibility, that purpose has always and only ever been delegated to the Son. John chapter 1 is very clear. No one has seen the Father at any time, but the Son, who is in the only begotten of the Father, he has revealed him, literally the term is exegeted him, explained him down to the bone. And there's another passage too that kind of throws this for a loop for some people. If you remember, Reynolds, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord in his glory, there's a reference in the Gospel of John. If you can turn there with me, it's in chapter 12, where he basically gives us an insight into which member of the Trinity he was seeing. Yeah, because some cool. people get confused. They go, so did Isaiah see the Father? Did Ezekiel see the Father? Did anyone see anyone other than Jesus? Yeah. And so when we're asking the question, when someone, quote unquote, saw God, and didn't blow up, what was the person of the Trinity being represented there? Well, in John chapter 12, and I want to start in verse 35 so you understand who's the object here before the he is mentioned. Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now, note, John explained this. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So Jesus speaks of the light, the revealing medium, as himself and says, I'm not going to be here forever. This is in foreshadowing his death and his resurrection. And then he'll be departing from them physically. But note, use the light while you have the light because it's not always going to be here. I'm not always going to be here. He hammers this point home. Now in verse 37, it goes on to note, although he, who is the he again, has the subject changed in any way? It says although, it's continuing the, sub the subject mentioned in verse 36, he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord, that's significant, but worth another question, mm -hmm. been revealed? Now again, that's a quote from Isaiah 53, the famous passage about the suffering servant. Then it says, therefore, they could not believe, notice the light, they wanted to use, they should have used the light, but they weren't using it, and they didn't know how much they were taking it for granted. He says, Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, 
lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Now here's the big one. Verse 41, has the subject changed with anyone other than Jesus? God the Son revealed, John chapter 1, verse 12, the Son has revealed, the only begotten of the Father has revealed him. Anyone changed as far as members of the Trinity being mentioned? No. It's still on the Son. It says, these things Isaiah said when he... Isaiah said he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw his glory. Who is the he? Who is the his? I love the NIV version because it says Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. And that's a completely accurate understanding and translation (laughs) of the text. Why? Because no one other than God the Son is the focus of this text. If someone's going to see God, it's the Son because that's the one to whom were revealed the nature of God with skin on. The spirit didn't become a man. The father didn't become a man. Both are spirit and therefore not visible. But we do have something that is visible, flesh and bone, which we saw the son adopted at a moment of history and revealed us the nature of God to him. So as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, what does he look like? He looks like the father. What does the father look like? He didn't look like anything. He's not a seen <laughs> thing. But God the Son became the sort of thing you can see, and we see the nature of both the Father and the Spirit represented in him. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Good stuff. Yeah, and I mean, there's so many. There's That's such a rich passage. <laughs> I mean, that, that section, uh, John 12, is just amazing. It's, it's really, really uh, a deep, wonderful passage um, there's there's so many references in this little section to other things in the Bible. Um, it would it would again be very good due diligence for anybody out there who's a, a lover of the Bible or just a you know a lover of Christ just to take just that one pa- one chapter maybe and really dissect it. Maybe go to enduringword.com. Um, that might be a good place to start. You know, our friend David Guzik and his his commentary on chapter 12 might give it some good things um, and uh, or would give it some nice, rich uh, understanding. But yeah, you you do really well to, to pay attention to it. But I love that. Isaiah sees Jesus, you know, and, um, and uh, the way you put that, Sean, was so awesome because I think, uh, you know, when you, I think of the Old Testament, I think of Isaiah. Um, you know, Isaiah talked about God as being the hidden God, and this is a theme throughout the scriptures. Where is God? God is hidden. God has left us. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and what does Jesus say? I have come to reveal, reveal the, Father. the Father. And Paul steps up and goes in Colossians 1. He's the image of the invisible what we can God. see of the non-image God. Yeah, and that's the important, that's another good passage, that one in Colossians chapter 1. Hmm. That um, you know that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, you know, and so that's something maybe to help you out is that God is invisible, you know. He's not. He you know when we say spirit, you know, we're describing something that is invisible, right? Incorporeal. Yeah, yeah. and our eyes are designed to see the reflection reflection of light, tough physical things that physically exist. Yeah, and it's interesting because we live in a day and age where we know things exist all around us that Mm. we can't see. Mm. And we determine that by the laws of logic, which you can't see either. Yeah, laws of logic. And (laughs) I think of like software. Like I can't see software. Like 
can I, I can't even quantify software, meaning I can't put it under a microscope, you know, software. How do you, what do you do? Like, Energy is not matter. You know, mm-hmm. but, but yet, yet software ha- produces so much information. Mm. Isn't that weird? Yeah. But it doesn't have weight or measurement or anything like that. It's absolutely. Well, it does. It's just, it's very small. It's ones and zeros is the code. Yeah. And the code is physically written on devices like hard drives. So it's, it's it has a physical existence. It's not, not material. Yeah. It's not immaterial, right. but it's just so small and yeah. microscopic that we can't read it like we can a textbook. Right. But it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty profound when it's you think about it. It's pretty weird when you think yeah. about it, you know? Like, because mm-hmm. we understand hardware, like on a computer, because it's, it's physical. That's, you know, you can hit yeah. it, you know, yeah. change the hard drive. It, it, those know? words are very appropriate. Hardware is because it's physically hard and yeah. tangible. Yeah. Software, it's not it's physically not quite, tangible. Yeah, it's not quite tangible. Like RAM, random access yeah. memory. Mm-hmm. Like how, how much does that weigh? <laughs> it's becoming increasingly lighter and lighter and cheaper yeah. and cheaper. But going back to the sun note, yeah. any appearance physically of God, that would be mm-hmm. the sun. That would be the most consistent approach biblically to that. Yeah, that's well, great. Nina, uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, Nina asks again on our uh, live stream on our website, which is I'm so glad people are tuning in here. Uh, why did God create the sun, moon, and stars? Were they a foreshadowing of the fall? Had Adam and Eve obeyed God? Would we we wouldn't use the sun, moon, and stars to measure time. So I think what uh, Nina is driving at is, is that if the fall didn't occur, um, why would we need to measure time? Because we would be eternal beings. So why did God create the sun, moon, and stars? Well, we're told in the Psalms, for example, for times and seasons, that's also mentioned in Genesis. Psalm 19, I think, is the most effective answer as to why the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament of the skies show his handiwork. Uh, It's the closest thing we can get to something eternal without melting, again, our our software. The (laughs) point being made is if I were to try to grasp the size of the sun it's what the estimations like 200 million earths can fit inside of it then we note a modest type of star like betelgeuse which it can fit 200 million of our suns or no it can fit us in orbit around the sun inside of it and have plenty of room to spare and then there's these stars that like the size of them canis mayor deo mm-hmm. is like maybe bigger than our galaxy or yeah, something there, it's is, just... there are yeah there are as big to the sun as the earth is to our sun it's, it's yeah just you, you just and, go into and, this and, and bigger <laughs> yeah and you just get into this mind warp it is understanding the source of power majesty and beauty something so unapproachable this illustration of god's glory that we can have and use as a point of reference for a pre-fall mind, these would be things to be thankful for. For a post-fall mind, these would be echoes for us to get back to what we've lost. But I think when it comes to why, the concern I hear in that tone, I guess, if you can get a tone from a text on a screen, is, well, if God didn't intend something to be there forever, then why'd he make it in the first place? (laughs) Adrian, you're a father. Bo, you're a more a veteran in that department. You, I'm, you take care of little kids sometimes, but um, you hang out with these kids and you give them toys, and you know eventually they're going to grow out of it. Why bother buying them if you aren't going to have those things around forever? It's the same silly logic. You want to bless your kids. You want to remind them of your goodness. You want to give them mm-hmm. that chance to enjoy things, even mm-hmm. if it's not a 
permanent residence. I can maybe imagine someone's thought process are, well, if he didn't create the sun, moon, and stars to last forever, what if he didn't create us to last forever? That's a what if, not a what is. What is told to us about the sun, moon, and stars is they're reflecting to us aspects of God's glory. And there is a purpose and a benefit in that, even if it's a temporary one. But if we ask, well, what if we never fell, and what purpose would these serve? Well, we did fall, and they serve a purpose. Here it is. Let's Mm -hmm. stick with that. And it's not to say that God did not intend us to, you know, experience time. Um, we were still, you know, before the fall said these are for the measuring of time. And so just because we don't die doesn't mean that we won't experience real time. The creation was the creation. God said it was good. Um, the universe existed. The universe was time-centered, so time passes. And uh, laws of physics may have been different, but um, it, it doesn't mean that the passage of time does not exist. And so the presumption would be, well, if I can't die before the fall as a human being, God created me to be eternal, uh, why would I need to measure time? <laughs> and, and, yeah. and there's no reason to think that we don't need to, just like we were dealing with earlier that uh, when when we're in heaven, uh, you know, will there be any, will time just stop? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, somebody else asked, um, will my pets be in the new heaven and earth? I like that. I, I think that I hear that question a lot. Um, you know, I I had a pet rabbit, and his name was Tux because he looked <laughs> like he was wearing a tux. He was a, a dwarf albino rabbit, and uh, will I see that rabbit again? Yeah, the concerns obviously because we as bearers of the image of God don't devalue or demean the value of life and creation. The concern people have is because, obviously, human beings were built and intended and created with a purpose in mind to last forever. They wonder if animals have the same purpose. And, of course, Scripture isn't negative on that, but it's not positive on it either. So when we ask about this eternal state, we can certainly find our place within it, but can we find other things, other than human things, also having that longevity? So we basically, just like with the concern about the interim bodies, go off of what we do know rather than what we don't. If God's the one who created these animals, much like the concern about God making a body, is he capable of that? We just have to establish means, motive, and opportunity. So that's how you solve pretty much anything as far as these what-if questions. So does God have the means of recreating these pets as they were, noting these preservations of relationships, and of course to do so in a state after their physical death? Absolutely. He can do the same with these bags of pork. He can do that with those bags of pork and hair. (laughs) Me more so in the comparison. Uh, The second thing is, would God have the motive to do so? Would he want to preserve relationships into and beyond an eternity. What's the whole point of us lasting forever to preserve our relationship? So that works as well. We can also build on this in noting, is the idea of animals in heaven with Jesus absurd? And of course, that's not the case. Not only did God intend to make animals, he's kind of a fan of the concept, but also, and this is significant, we see animals post-Genesis existing in heaven in the place where God directly manifests his glory. In Revelation 19, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a horse ran up so that Jesus could sit on it. No, he was already on the horse, and we were on horses following with him, the armies of heaven. So there are 
animals in the presence of God, or at least that could be introduced at that point. Were those your horses? That's the thing you have to infer. But noting the possibility of animals existing in the presence of the Lord, that's not absurd. We have examples of it. Do we have examples? And there's other views on the end times that throw this all out. That's your problem. But is it beyond God's? <laughs> is it beyond God's nature to create animals? Awesome. Well, it was at the beginning. Why would it be in the after? Then, of course, you have to ask, okay, so is it is within God's nature to value the lives of these animals. Well, in Proverbs, um, it's chapter 12 and verse, do you remember the verse? I don't remember the verse, but I, I know which one you're referring to about taking the, care of your animals, Yeah, right? it, it's a point of contrast that Solomon makes. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the way, he says, the righteous man, someone in a right relationship with God. So you got God's heart, you got this guy's heart, they're, they're right on, they're together, mm-hmm. regards the life the question, is that going to be continued to be regarded, of his animal? Notice not just animals, his animal, an idea of ownership. But, by contrast, the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Now, we're the first ones to emphasize context. This is a poem. This is meant to make a point of contrast about when people who aren't right with God try to be nice, it's mean. But when people who are right with God are nice, even to the less you know, than human life forms. Because you go to the Middle East today, they're not nice to their animals. Hmm. You, you see these uh, goat and sheep herders, they get out of line, they just start smacking them, and you're just like, where's PETA when these guys show up? So the yeah, it's not just PETA that. that believes in the taking, not being cruel to animals, but God does not approve of cruelty to animals for cruelty's sake. Yeah, and God's even consistent with it because he doesn't argue cruelty to humans is then the just recompense. But the point being made is this. If we can establish from Scripture, does God care about the lives of animals? Well, there's a point made in Scripture that that's one of the characteristics of someone in a right relationship with God. Is the existence of animals in the eternal state, in the presence of God, absurd? No, we have direct examples of it if you're consistent in your handling of the passage, a plain reading of it, which we encourage. Then you have to go, okay, so then is it within God's capacity to create these animals, not just copies of them, like some Jehovah's Witness fever dream, but some actual reintroduction to these animals. I'd say, and this is what I have to and what I always will make the effort to do as a Bible teacher who fears God, say it's within the realm of possibility. It's not beyond the pale for God to do those things. But I can't in good conscience say, here's chapter and verse, because we aren't told. What we're told is what makes heaven heaven with Jesus. If you need your animals there, and this is the short answer, he can cover that. But there are scriptural reasons that we can take and say, yeah, that seems like a reasonable idea that we'll see Tux, that I'll see uh, Lucas, that you'll see whatever animals that you've uh, had stewardship over the years. With. I wonder what about those folks who like collect stray cats. They always have like five or six cats at a time. You got some and, heavenly and maybe, cat lady. Maybe 30 or 40 crazy. in their lifetime. That would be interesting to be like legit. You know, I got 40 cats in my heavenly home. and <laughs> Yeah, you, you got you got your horde. <laughs> but that's a twofold question. Go forth, my felines. Uh, is there animals in heaven? That's one thing. And will God resurrect my pet? Right. And that's a question of can he, would he, will he? We can't yeah. answer the will. Mm-hmm. We can't answer the can, we can't answer mm-hmm. the will, right. or the could. And the rest, we just lack information. Yeah, but we can fall mm-hmm. back on the nature of Jesus and noting, if I need that with him, 
with him is the operative term. Yeah, and I, I and the prior question too, I would have that person read um, the one about uh, the creation of kind of the sun and stars and all that. I'd have them read um, Psalm one fifteen, and just take a look at kind of what the psalmist is is saying in that passage. Um, uh, the whole passage is great. It's a comparison between the God of the Bible and um, pagan deities. But uh, there's one specific passage that's great. It says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And then it talks later on about the, the, um, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, and the earth has been given to men or mankind. Um, but I find, I find that question very cool. That was a neat question. And as a musician, I find it even more neater because, you know, creating is so, uh, such an amazing part of our lives and such a beautiful part of, of, uh, of us as human beings. And, and we are a reflection. Remember, we're made in the image of God and the likeness of God. And as we create and find such joy in the outpouring of our art artistry, so God is an artist. Mm. And you have to remember mm. that about the God of the Bible is that one of that he is the artist. He is the ultimate musician. And, and this is why these things matter. Mm. is because God in his being is is a creative being. Mm. And so I, I just throw that out. I, I, that, <clears throat> I, that resonates with me because when I was competing and I was standing on a stage in Las Vegas in Sin City, <laughs> and I was a pretty new believer, and I was on my way out of the entertainment world. I thought, well, I'm a Christian now, so I'm going to give up being a magician I'm going to give up, you know, being in entertainment because that's secular and I can't have anything secular. At least that was my initial wrongful thinking. I can't have anything secular in my life. And and being in entertainment, movies, the yeah, pursuing yeah. is that's all sinful. So, but uh, uh, with much counsel and with those around me and much prayer, I decided to compete in this competition. And I just, Remember thinking God is the creator. He he takes joy in his creation, and I take joy in what I create artistically. And this is this act that I've been working on is my creation, my That's artwork. Right. Yeah, it's your and masterpiece. Yeah, it was my masterpiece, and I would just imagine Jesus mm. sitting in the front row as one of my mentors, one of my Christian, actually the man who baptized me, <clears throat> said, just imagine Jesus sitting in the front row. And the nervousness went away, and I was now just performing for an audience of one. And that's mm-hmm. that was my attitude uh, then. And I, I try to still picture that even now when I go on stage, that I'm creating art that t- God takes joy in. Yeah. And, it, and, 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 I mean, it gets into metaphysics and our, the philosophy of everything, but, you know, we are able to be artists. We are able to be creative. We are mm-hmm. able to play music we are able to understand music that where does this come from hmm. and this is what the bible says it's god you have a master's degree in music so i don't have a master's degree in music but i, oh, I, I feel like a I master <laughs> i feel like i do oh okay i thought i thought one time you had <laughs> no, said you had a master's no, degree no. In music, i've studied with a lot of masters in music gotcha. though, that's gotcha. for sure but let's go on to the next. yeah we have another finals. question um uh interesting question uh well, again, another heavenly. We're getting a lot of heavenly questions, but this is this is good. It's the heaven um, hour. <laughs> the question is: Will we have memory of those who we knew on earth, uh, who were 
who are lost yeah. when in heaven, will we forget or not care? Yeah, um, he cites the passage, uh, part of it anyway. Uh, he removes as far as the east is from the west, and I clarified, what does he remove? Our sins. That's in the Psalms, so noting that in Isaiah. But noting that point, our sins are being removed. Our memory is a sin. Mm-hmm. I don't think you have to add any more to that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So, the, so the basically... You know what we're well, that passage you're saying is not obviously dealing with the issue of will we remember people on the earth? Yeah, it's not like um, you go to heaven and it's men in black with the little neuralizer thing. Yeah, and I think that's the important part. People that are in heaven, I think when we look at the Bible, there are people that are before the throne of God, and they do know people. They know about what's going on on the earth. They do know the earth, um, mm-hmm. but they see it from a different perspective. Obviously, a God-centered perspective, and that changes everything. Hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense because. God already knows all that'll be lost. He wishes that none perish. Jesus looked at Jerusalem and wept and said, you know, how he there's the desire to gather the children of Israel like a hen gathers her chicks. Um, and so when you see that that grief coupled with love and sentiment, um, I would imagine that we would have the exact same heart once we see him as he is, once we yeah, and some people some people do say that when you, like they have this idea of like oh when I'm in heaven it'll be it would be hell to know like what's going on with my my people on mm. but that's again that's from that's from a you're thinking of it from an earthly perspective yeah. not from a heavenly perspective in heaven things are going to be a lot mm. different with wow. Jesus yeah. with Jesus well thank you so much for tuning in and that's uh, all we have for today uh, please tune in again next time. Uh, same, t- same place, same time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.